to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel. That means Jorna Taylor, a consultant here in Wisconsin, is with us. Jorna, how you doing? Good morning. And Robert Craig, our Executive Director here at Citizen Action, is with us as always. Robert, good to see you. Good morning, Matt. Hope you're doing well bright and early in Berkeley, California. So there you go. You've revealed I'm lying. I cannot see you, Robert. I am in Berkeley, California. I am at a conference and uh, learning uh, learning a lot and looking forward to coming home soon. But uh, we got a great podcast for you this week. We're going to talk about the recount. We have to. It's uh, pretty much everywhere. And we're going to talk not only about, uh, we'll talk about the presidential recount. We'll also talk briefly about the state Senate recount for Jennifer Schilling. We must talk about Donald Trump's announcement that he's supposedly saving a thousand carrier jobs. Uh, we'll talk about how this could be a preview of what J- Donald Trump's uh, progressive job policy looks like. Uh, I say progressive in quotes, it's not. Uh, we also want to talk about the overtime rule that was uh, suspended or held up by a judge last week. Robert's got some news on uh, Trump's HHS secretary, and we'll briefly mention a statewide transportation summit that's going on this weekend that we think our listeners should be interested in. So, panel, I can't see you. I miss you here uh, in California. It's been cold. Let's talk about this recount. So on Tuesday, uh, 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 a Green Party presidential candidate, or Jill Stein, uh, submitted the amount of money necessary, I believe it was like three and a half million to Wisconsin, to trigger this uh, recount. And uh, we also found out on Tuesday that a judge refused to order a hand recount of all the ballots, although it looks like a number of counties will do something like that or do some some form of the recount. So I want to hear from the panel. Uh, we briefly mentioned this last week at the end of the show as this news was breaking. This has been a little, this is controversial, I think, even amongst progressives. Uh, It's very clear that the Clinton campaign, while coming out in uh, support of the lawsuit this week, uh, doesn't seem to really support this. In fact, many Clinton um, uh, campaign leaders are, in some cases, quite hostile to this. Want to get the panel's thoughts on just sort of uh, your feelings about this recount. Uh, Jorna, why don't you kick us off? (laughs) Thanks for that, Matt. Um, You know, I'm a little bit torn. Obviously, I care a lot about the integrity of our elections, but I and I know that there have been some purported abnormalities in some ways, but I find it hard to believe that there was a widespread massive cyber attack on our antiquated voting machines. Um, You know, they're they're programmed by the county clerks and it would take somebody, you know, downloading some malware into the program and then having that software that is used to program each individual machine, except that that virus. And I, I just I find it hard to believe. Um, but if anything, this this could be good to demonstrate the integrity that Wisconsin elections are actually run with. So um, I think it'll be interesting to watch this play out through the courts and see where it ends up. So, Robert, I know I had a brief conversation with you earlier this week, and 
you seemed a little bit more open to the idea that this hacking was possible. Could you tell us a little bit more about why maybe you feel that this is uh, this is the possibility might be a little stronger than say the Clinton uh, folks may, may feel. The thing here is is that we have we do have a very insecure voting system, and we do have documented cyber attacks um, on the Democratic Party, on may- leading Democrats like John Podesta, etc., by sophisticated foreign powers. Quite frankly, so what? Who's been at the center of this whole discussion has been a professor at Michigan named J. Alex Halderman, who's the director of the University of Michigan Center for Computer Security and Society. And he has been saying for years that our voting machines are extremely uh, insecure and that it would not be a difficult thing for a sophisticated uh, power entity to actually uh, fix elections. And so whether it happened or not is another question. But let me just say, uh, because conservatives are kind of in a box on this because they say this is all fantasy and crazy. And at the same time, right, they... um, uh, they claim that photo that we need photo ID because there's uh, massive amounts of, uh, of identity uh, impersonation voter fraud, right? And so this is much more credible than that. And this ought to at least spur, spur major reform of the system. We have a very decentralized system. We have very outdated voting machines. Uh, in Wisconsin, some of the rural areas have no paper backup, but a lot in Pennsylvania, like most of the state, has no paper backup whatsoever. And just so people understand, because we're hearing this stuff from election officials that the machines aren't connected to the Internet, right? They are basically a ballot is sent emailed to these county clerks and uh, municipal clerks who then put it on a flash drive and load it on these machines. Well, uh, putting malware on those things to hitch a ride would not be technically challenging, actually, at all, if you could hack in uh, to to the state election board, for example. And there aren't that many to hack into. So it's not every single county. It's not sending in rogue agents in every single county, et cetera. So and I think Jill Stein, who has been worried about uh, this level of fraud and the insecurity of the American vote for years, I think that's why she's doing it. The fact she's been able to raise the money to do it is a good test of the system. Whether they'll find any hacking that would change the election, that's fine. That we don't know. Probably not. But here's the other thing, right? Um, Trump has now claimed that there are millions of fraudulent votes in other states that he lost and has provided no evidence whatsoever. So this is all occurring within that context, obviously, the context where where Trump thought he was going to lose and kept saying the election was rigged. And then when he won, he's in a position that he has to turn and say that's outrageous for anyone else to say the election could have been rigged. And I'll remind our listeners, the the total popular vote now, uh, the margin is over 2 million. I think we're at about 2.3 million that uh, Clinton actually won the popular vote with, which I think also really is a little bit of a burr that uh, I think aggravates people, right, and makes them more wanting to take a look at this. Um, I think what I find really frustrating about this is most of us just have, we're ill-equipped, and I, I definitely put myself in that category, to fully appreciate and understand how this could happen, right? I mean, because I don't know, understand. I barely can get my Dell computer functioning when, when things go wrong. I, I can't fully comprehend, you know, how all of this could or couldn't work. So we, we are left when, uh, when we have this Halderman from, from Michigan. We do rely on experts often, and it's incredibly confusing when you have the elections board, and, and I think it's Ross Hines saying things like, uh, there's no way you could do this. You'd have to get your hands on it. 
um, and then being absolutely contradicted by a, a supposed computer expert, which, you know, it just leads to a great deal of confusion. I just... Well, the chair of the University of Michigan's department, just to be clear here, this is like much higher level than what we usually ascribe to expert. We call these flakes at right-wing think tanks experts all the time in this culture, right? But as the judge pointed out in when she denied a mandated hand recount in Wisconsin, it's all theoretical, and she's right about that. Uh, but it's it's but there's no doubt. I don't think there's a doubt that's theoretically possible. But there's just no evidence it happened, and that's why Jill Stein wants the recount. Well, so in in, in many ways, then it's really the fact that um, some of the hacking occurred uh, in the primary of Democratic Party and and other folks. You mentioned Podesta, right? Uh, that actually gives us more validity in the fact that uh, while there may be no evidence, we've certainly now seen that it's certainly doable. Jorna, I think I might have interrupted you. It's okay. I. Let's let's just look at the bigger picture here, though. We now have uh, um, three presidential candidates, a president-elect, uh, the two major parties, and a Green Party, saying that there's no integrity in our elections. And that narrative is incredibly dangerous, and all it does is turn people off from participating. And, you know, we as progressives work so hard to expand the electorate and get people to trust that their vote counts and that they can have a say in their democracy. And all this does is turn them off again and make people think that it doesn't matter and why should they even participate and the system is rigged and that's what what is being said and so that whole narrative coming out of this potential recount is really disappointing disheartening and frankly scary for the united states but part of what happened was after the fiasco in florida in 2000 where the supreme court basically on partisan grounds the idea that these are judges as opposed to politicians with black robes was uh, was uncovered then in 2000. After that, uh, Congress's legislation on, on all of this didn't make it better. And then we still have an extremely underfunded, fragmented election system that is, that is, it, that is terrible in close elections, but also is, it, it has substantial vulnerabilities in the modern computer age. And so there, wouldn't it be nice if we actually invested in a modern election system and then made everyone's registration automatic because if you're if you're a citizen Absolutely, of this country Robert. you should just get to vote. Absolutely, but do you think that's going to be the outcome of this? <laughs> just just well, checking. <laughs> I love your last two comments cuz I think that is getting to the nut of this. I mean, I'm Jordan, I share your your deep concerns about the the problem you raised. I I, I think I saw something where half of the country uh, has doesn't or believes that this could happen, right? And and has real questioning as to whether our system has the integrity that we need, which is absolutely damaging. Uh, Journey, that's a great point. That actually we got all three of them, you know, uh, making these charges. Although to be fair, Clinton's camp, uh, while they've supported this lawsuit, um, true. Really, uh, in fact, many of them seem quite hostile and upset and um, are publicly encouraging activists instead to, you know, uh, support a group, get involved in the the recount in Louisiana, where we still have the Senate, uh, U.S. Senate seat um, uh, that has not been determined. Uh, but to kind of move on, I think, and really get into the fight, and, and that's their argument. I Look, I, I, I kind of understand what they're saying, but I just – I. I hope that at the back end of this, we do end up closer to where 
where you guys were commenting that maybe we could actually start to have a serious conversation about how do we create a, a 21st century uh, uh, election system that does protect the integrity of the vote. One thing that I wanted to get your 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 guys' thoughts on, I did have to laugh at the Republican Party. I believe it was yesterday filing a complaint that there was somehow a legal coordination between Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton. That is just comical because it's very clear that these two are not at all on the same page. I thought they. I thought they. Had, the state supreme court under right wing control had shredded coordination. I guess no, but there's the, the RPW still wants to file coordination complaints with the FEC. Well, I thought that they took a post election vacation together, so they probably discussed this while sipping margaritas on the beach. I, Jorna, that's beautiful. I should the thought of Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton's campaign coordinating is it's almost comical because I, I just can't imagine. But um, they got their press and their news out there. It, it was almost like they were trying to produce some onion news story for the week on this one. If nobody else has any other thoughts on on the uh, presidential uh, recount, I'll, I, I'll just say a, I'll uh, just say one other thing, Matt. Sure. This is highly unlikely. Um, I don't, if any irregularities are found, they're probably not sufficient enough to overturn the election. Then they create a constitutional crisis because the electoral college has to vote on December 13th, I believe is the date. And so I don't think this is likely, but there's an outside black swan kind of scenario here that if there is any evidence of any hacking at all, it pro- there's probably not enough time to change the election, but there would, it would cause a major constitutional crisis. Yeah, and and so our listeners know it. I believe it's December thirteenth. Is that the date that that has to happen? And, and if nothing's been decided, I believe um, the Republicans, since they control all levers of government, could just vote our electors. If I'm correct, our ten electors. Um, Apparently, Wisconsin Trump. can just do that too, and, and and plans to do that. But anyway. Yep. Yep. So, but you you know you raise a good point, Robert. It it. it Obviously, if anything is found where there's something that shows up unusual here, it it this this will be one, the biggest thing for our democracy in a long time in a very disturbing way. Uh, of course, unless it leads to what you guys referenced earlier, a serious overhaul in the creation of a, of a 21st century uh, voting system. Um, with that, though, I, I want us to talk briefly about the state Senate recount that's been going on in the La Crosse area for uh, State Senator Jen Schilling. She is in a battle. She won, I believe, I want to say, I don't have it in front of me, but by about 55, 50-some votes, uh, 56 votes, excuse yeah. me. Um, and that's in the middle of a recount. I don't know, Jorna, do you have any information on this? Do you, you may have some folks you know that are involved in this, or what are your thoughts? No, but I think I, I don't actually have anyone involved in this. But from the reports from those county clerks, it looks like the chain, the vote change is not going to happen and that um, Jen Schilling will retain her seat and hopefully then continue to be the state Senate minority leader for the Democrats. There is only one concerning comment from the Crawford County clerk who said that, quote, if there is going to be change, sometimes it just might simply be a paper ballot. One maybe that was rejected but shouldn't have been. She goes on to say there were very, very few ballots rejected, and some were simply because people came to the poll instead of the absentee. So then, of course, the absentee was rejected. 
Um, that's not a thing because our names are not attached to our ballots. So um, I'm not sure what she's really talking about, but that statement is a little bit concerning, and I'm sure our election administration friends will look into that and talk to the county clerk. Jorna, I am so glad you pointed that out. I was going to, I read that and was, my jaw dropped. I was like, what? That It doesn't work that way. And and how would you even give them a ballot? They, should, they shouldn't be on the rolls, if I'm correct, right? Or am uh, I so, missing something? No, you're, what you're missing is that people can be on the permanent absentee ballot list. So if you have a disability and can't get in, you may have been sent a ballot. But if you didn't return it and you had someone bring you to the polls or um, whatever and cast your ballot in person – your other ballot really never got returned and never existed for all intents and purposes. So to say that it, that the second ballot was somehow turned in and then rejected because they knew that the machine knew that you voted, uh, this is this is a little disconcerting, to be honest. And maybe she just misspoke. People do that, but um, we should, you know, regularly, Jorna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, this gets back to the 21st century voting system. I mean, I I was reading a Racine Journal Times editorial, and I I swear to God, it seems like sometimes some people's biggest concern is the poor work that the clerks are going to have to do, and and you know how what a what a great burden this is, which only gets back to the point that we have this bizarre system that's carried out by municipalities, and you know they all do it in varying levels of quality and and it it just seems the system is actually just not not necessarily as sound as it should be and and of course that's why we have so many people that don't have any confidence in it and this uh recount's going to be is clearly going forward so we'll continue to track this obviously there might be a lot more news next week on our podcast Want to switch gears a little bit, although not too 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 different, and follow up a little bit on a redistricting conversation we had Sachin Chetta on recently to talk about the lawsuit and uh, it going forward. Uh, this week, State Senate Democrat Dave Hansen uh, said that he is going to reintroduce a bill that he pushed in 2012, and it uh, died an untimely death, but that would be to uh, do serious redistricting reform and, and essentially get redistricting out of the hands of the politicians and put it in charge of a, uh, a, a committee that essentially would not have politicians or people connected to them serving on it. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, this seems like it would be greatly needed. I don't know that this would go very far with the Republicans, but it seems like the right thing that Dave should be pushing and, and uh uh, getting out there, wanted to get people's uh, thoughts on, on on this legislation, and you know, if, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that this is going to go anywhere, but maybe you guys have some other thoughts. I have no thoughts other than I doubt that anything proposed by a Democrat in Wisconsin is going to go anywhere in any foreseeable future. Uh, bipartisan bill to prevent either side from rigging uh, the districts in their favor. <laughs> Uh, passed by wrong a Republican majority. Um, they have staked their party right now on grabbing the reins of power any way they can. And so there used to be a good government movement in the Republican Party. There's still some of those good government Republicans left. They're like in their 70s. They're on the boards of good government groups. 
the whole party has been transformed. It's about it's about grabbing power and winning, and the way they operated in this redistricting uh, uh, that they did in 2011 is so gross that it's now been then thrown out as unconstitutional in federal court, which is a major freaking deal for judges to intervene in the prerogative as a legislature. This way, there's usually a kind of gentleman's agreement and gentlewoman's agreement around the about the division of power here. And so we don't know what would happen at the U.S. Supreme Court level. We don't know if the Democrats are going to have the spine, for example, to filibuster any Trump right-wing Supreme Court appointment after what they did with the Merrick Garland appointment. Uh, but that's all going to go to the Supreme Court. And I don't. I think the Republicans are going to play out their hand and try to not only keep these districts in place, but to be in position to gerrymander the state for the 2020s as well. Yeah, no, I, obviously, I totally agree with both of you. I, what I like about this is it's, it keeps this issue in the forefront, and I think we need to keep pushing and pushing on this because exactly what both of you said, it's the, both the parties are less are not likely at all to pursue this, and Robert, uh, the Republican Party, it's laughable uh, that they would. But this is a good issue for us, and we're going to have this court case moving, and I'm, you know, glad Senator Hansen is reintroducing it. And I think we need to find ways as a movement to keep, you know, not only just redistricting, but this 21st century democracy, uh, a system coming up with something much better that actually reflects what's going on in, in, in our states uh, is, is absolutely critical. And so kudos to Dave Hansen for, for getting it out there. And, and I, I just think we need to keep pushing this because it, it's, again, it's another one of those that's not necessarily an ideological – it ought not be an ideological issue. And, I, you know, so I think it's something we need to move and it really expose the right for, as you said, Robert, really being about power at all costs. So we'll, 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 we, we will we'll, – we'll watch the bill die, but let's, uh, let's keep talking about it and uh, make sure that this issue doesn't go away. I do want to switch to uh, talking about Donald Trump. Big news this week uh, with Trump, although, God, there's so much big news. Um, As we know, Trump uh, ran uh, as this populist and has really talked about trade. And it was announced yesterday, so Wednesday, that Donald Trump had actually cut a deal, or it's unclear, there's very actually quite few details, with Carrier, which very publicly last year announced that it was going to move about 2,000 jobs to Mexico. And Trump made a big deal of it on the campaign. There was a viral video, Matt, right? What's that? There was a viral video of the firing with a carrier VP reading some script at workers. We should put a link to it. It's just shocking, though, when the company went in to tell the employees about the layoffs. But um, Trump made a big deal of this on the campaign trail, and I actually think it, you know this this was a big part of his election, uh, reaching out to folks that he was going to put a 35% tariff on uh, carrier on the carrier air conditioners. So made a big deal about this. I want to get your your thoughts on this because uh, you know this is not all that it uh, is stacked up to be, and I I think what's important about this is. This appears to me to be much more of, you know, just handing taxpayer money over to Carrier with no strings attached, much like what we've been complaining about with WEDEC. It runs a lot like, uh, more. it's more like what governors do. I think this is coming from Pence uh, than what presidents do. 
presidents don't negotiate one by one with companies to prevent outsourcing and shower favors upon them individually in most cases. I mean, you had the auto industry bailout, but that was much broader in the context of a, of a financial meltdown, right, For a ma and, and the impact of a major industry. This is one employer. Uh, we don't know. There's a press conference today after our taping with Trump and Pence, and you'd think there might be more information, but knowing Trump, there might not be. Uh, but it looks like they, and it, they didn't restore all the jobs. They announced uh, uh, laying off a lot more than than uh, the numbers jobs that they're supposedly going to save. Uh, it's probably going to be less than a thousand saved. We don't know how long. We don't know any kind of standards or criterion here. But this looks a lot like Governor Walker's WEDEC-like behavior. So under Pence in Indiana, this is happening in Indiana, for example. Uh, they had doled out $24 million to 10 companies uh, who then in turn went and outsourced jobs. Sound familiar? Sound a little like Wisconsin? And uh, they, and, and in total, it was 3,820 jobs that were sent overseas to Mexico and China. And so it turned out, of course, that any kind of clawbacks on you didn't create the jobs only were on a facility-by-facility -facility basis. And if you went and outsourced jobs from another facility, you're perfectly fine taking tens of millions from the state government. And so we'll see what happens with Carrier, but it is uh, Trump's uh, flair for the dramatic, and so he's going to show that now that he's in leadership, he can make a deal with these companies and they'll keep the jobs here. Um, we'll see if he can sustain this narrative throughout a whole administration, but um, it's good press for him mostly on the front end, even though it's getting more criticism than it usually would, uh, because it because it's it, it, there's obviously some basically it's basically a quid pro quo kind of bribe this is a company close to pence and uh the, and it looks like the opposite of his uh 35 tariff to stop you from doing it now it's we're just going to give away the store we're going to give away give you huge federal and tax and state tax incentives so that you keep some of the jobs here for an undetermined amount of time well and i know that you know i'm usually the one that brings the snark but this really sort of reminds me of a combination of a reality TV drama playing out at the national level. It's, you know, it's one part The Apprentice, it's one part Shark Tank, and then it's also one part RuPaul's Drag Race in many ways, you know. <laughs> like, I mean, this is just sort of over the top. Um, it, the tweets haven't stopped from the president-elect that are just outrageous. You know, there was the whole put people in jail that burn the flag comments this week. And I, it, it's just, it is fascinating. So this reality show distracts, unfortunately, from what is going to be a an incredibly, to use a Robert word, draconian rollback the, you know, clock decades and decades on progressive good public policy that helps people it's just going to be a, a sideshow of look over here while behind the scenes um, Paul Ryan and the Republican-led Congress are just destroying everything that progressives care about yeah it's it's worth pointing out that the union wasn't even contacted has no details right this right I, this is, to me, this is the beginning of sort of seeing how Trump is going to, I guess, triangulate or get around or reconcile his populist uh, rhetoric on the economy and helping working people um, with the reality. And, and this was, as you said, Jorna, it was classic Trump in terms of being a really understanding how to use the media. This story got out and it, you know, got out with for the most part, I think 
headlines that make Trump look good and look like before he's even president, he has come in and starting to address one of the top issues he talked about on the campaign. And unfortunately, you know, this people's attention span won't stay on it long enough when the details come out. And the details will never get when, you know, we find out that it's less than 800 jobs that are left and, you know, two years later when they go anyways and, you know, the clawbacks, we're all into the weeds where the public just ain't going to track it. But those voters will have seen, particularly those not likely voters that voted for Trump in the end will have seen this big splashy news story that was all over the media uh, Wednesday, um, including, you know, video of workers, you know, many of them, while some being a little hesitant and unclear, you know, saying positive things. So it's it's brilliant on Trump's part and deeply disturbing in, in many ways because I just, you know, the, the tinsel will not be looked at on, or look, people will not look underneath the tinsel of this and follow this. And, and we, as, as you mentioned, Robert, we've seen this with WEDEC. We know where this is headed. Um, and <laughs> so, but again, it's, it's part of the danger of Trump and why he is, you know, very scary because this this issue can really you know continue to absolutely destroy the Democratic Party if he is successful in confusing people and getting people to believe that he is the one who's actually leading on addressing this issue since quite frankly it has not been adequately addressed by either party up until now I disagree slightly in this I think he's elevated the carrier issue so that if Carrier ultimately outsources all the jobs in his first term, I think it will become a major question and it, and it may be become a, a part of a narrative about the Trump promise versus what Trump delivers. On the short term, it's successful for him. And in fact, the message is, who needs a union when you have Trump? And Trump is going to negotiate with each right. company and make sure and protect your job from now on. So even if Carrier does keep the 800 jobs and only outsource 1,200 jobs, let's just take those numbers as reality, um, you know, even that narrative, what, what, you, I can see an argument being made, well, why didn't Trump save my job? You know, my, my company in Wausau, Wisconsin left and Trump didn't do anything because isn't he putting himself on the hook now for individually protecting every job because he's a deal maker and he can deal with the co corporate CEO titans because he's one of them? I hope you're right, Robert. I, I, you know, I'm very cynical about this and people's attention span. I, you know, the back details are rarely told as well as the first flashy story, and the timing of this is extremely helpful for him. We'll see. And again, I, I would be surprised if in this in the Trump administration all those jobs end up getting outsourced. I, you know, we even even the deal as it currently laid out as we as best we know we're still only talking about 850 jobs staying so they're they're largely getting what they need mostly anyways and i'm sure whatever incentives will cover more than cover the difference of what they were going to make up by outsourcing these jobs so we'll see robert you're probably right i hope you're right and i think that is actually the challenge of us as a movement to stay on top of this and this issue because it is one of the defining issues going forward in terms of how are we going to make this economy fair and undo the rigged economy and, and, and make it something that works for working families in our communities, which currently we know it does not. So, Robert, um, 
I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, Jorna was mentioning some of the other things, the flag burning going on. Uh, we've had some uh, more cabinet appointments, and uh, HHS secretary was appointed this week, and I believe that has a lot to foretell on what's going to be happening uh, in the immediate future on both the Affordable Care Act, but broader things, and how that entices, entangles Medicaid and Medicare. I'd like to get your thoughts on, on, on this appointment. Well, there's been some wishful link thinking on the left, and I think it's similar to the wishful thinking after Walker's election in 2010, uh, that the worst won't happen, that Trump will understand that you can't throw 22 million people off of health care without replacement, undermine Medicaid by bot granting it, that's Badger Care in this state, and moving to a Medicare voucher program. Uh, but And so there's an, I hope there's a separation between Trump and they, some, there was hope around this after his meeting with Obama, where he said, "Oh, we shouldn't. We should keep a couple popular provisions like uh, banning discrimination against folks with pre-existing conditions." That Trump wasn't going to go all the way, but appointing Congressman Tom Price as HHS Secretary is evidence that this is a worst-case scenario, just like Act 10 was a worst-case scenario uh, for labor rights in Wisconsin. And so, literally, this is a guy who believes in the whole hog here. Uh, repeal without any viable replacement, block granting Medicaid, turning Medicare into a voucher program. It's all one fight now. And quite frankly, they could repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, essentially uh, throw 22 million people off health care, effective two years from the date, um, and offer nothing of any, any viability to replace it um, as early as Inauguration Day through a, a kind of complicated process called reconciliation where they only need 50 votes in the Senate. So I think that there needs to be, this needs to be one of the first major fights in the Trump camp and in, in a whole Trump era. And even if they do, it has to be set up in such a way that the public understands what they did. They pay a political price for it, and then they are forced to put in a real replacement during the two-year gap between when they passed this and when, every, when, um, when most of the features of the Affordable Care Act go away. So Price just shows that this is all out war on basically any kind of right to health care and affordable health care in this country. There are Trump voters lining up on interviews saying that they expect their health care costs to come down now to have more choice and more options because they voted for Trump. So the one big difference here is, is that unlike any other time when Republicans were just against doing something in the future on health care reform, they now were elected on the idea that they would bring health care costs down and make it more accessible and give people a lot more choice. And when the opposite happens, uh, we have to, to, to have the kind of resistance that will make them own it and them, and them wear it. And maybe this becomes an opportunity eventually if they destroy the Affordable Care Act to actually go to a much stronger level of reform, a Medicare for all kind of model, which wouldn't have any, had any of the problems of the complicated health insurance exchange system that was created by Obamacare. Hey, Jorna, speaking of uh, possible appointments, your good friend uh, Sarah Palin, I hear, may uh, take over the Veterans Administration. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. You know, Matt, she knows a lot about veterans because um, she can see Russia from her house, and uh, she could ride her snow machine to the VA, and then she could talk to veterans. Oh, good and Lord. David the... Clark, Matt. You're forgetting about That's David Clark. Sheriff to you, Robert. Uh, was at Trump Tower this week? Ugh. Wearing his hat. Wearing his hat. And uh, 
literally, I don't know if they'd be bold enough to make him secretary of the, one of the largest departments in the government, the Department of Homeland Security, but that's allegedly what he's in the running for. I mean, it would become like, if anybody watches Homeland on Showtime, um, it would be like the farce, the stereotype or the um, sat- satire. That's the word I'm looking for. The satire of Homeland uh, with with Sheriff Clark. But there would be a lot of horses. And I'm not opposed to having Homeland Security have more horses. Is he kind of like riding on a horse out front of a bunch of tanks that are following the horse? Well, I mean, you know, Washington, D.C. should feel safest the week that the National Horse Show comes into town and all the horses are stabled at the Verizon Center. So, you know, I'm not opposed to that part of it. Just going to put that out there. And let's be honest, it takes him out of Wisconsin. And so far, not much talk of Walker for Labor Secretary, fortunately. Well, before we go, I do want us to talk a little bit about the federal overtime rule uh, in, and how it was blocked by a federal judge. I, we haven't had a chance to talk about this. We have talked in the past about the overtime rule. Um, the, the, and again, for our listeners, this was a new Labor Department rule that would essentially make about 4.2 million workers eligible for overtime pay. And it was set to take effect today, December 1st, but the judge blocked it. And, you know, this is absolutely critical, and we need to be talking about this issue because, again, we we talked about this earlier. Trump ran for president on this populist message. And what more could you do? What I mean, this is one of the best piece, best decisions to actually help make work pay since we now have – if you're a salaried employee and you – you earn over $23,000, uh, you're not eligible really for, for guaranteed overtime pay. And, and this, this um, new rule would essentially allow people up to about 47, a little over $47,000 uh, or about 35% of salaries, salaried workers in America to qualify for overtime. And uh, just an absolutely important issue where I think we could put pressure on Trump around trying to do something that would um, help carry out some of his uh, campaign promises. So very, very important issue that I I, want to make sure our listeners are aware of. um, And I think we need to really be pressuring on on this issue. Well, remember, Trump ran on the rigged economy. uh, But what he meant by rigging seemed to be that we didn't have the Donald to negotiate for us one-on-one. but quite frankly, this is a perfect example of the rigged economy. You hear all the business groups complaining and saying it's a disaster and it's terrible and we should go slow. They were against ever raising it. They're the reason that we, we call someone who makes a little over $23,000 a professional and therefore they can be worked uh, unlimited overtime hours without any overtime pay. And so if Donald mean, meant anything of his populist rhetoric, then this is exactly the kind of thing that he, that he should be supporting. So this is a very good early test. And I, unfortunately, it's my opinion we're going to find out that he's perfectly fine with working people 60 hours without overtime because that's certainly what his business practice has been um, as, a, as a tycoon. And so I hope I'm wrong. I hope that Donald shows that he is different and that he, and that he actually wants to give uh, for over 4 million uh, workers a raise and actually pay them for their extra work. Uh, I'm just not optimistic. Well, and if I can just add, I, I also hope that uh, a lot of the nonprofits that have been lamenting this change 
uh, will change their tune as well. You know, at least in our world, it's something that we as progressives run on is living wage and being able to have jobs that are family supporting and um, I'm disappointed whenever I read something from a nonprofit that says, well, we just can't afford that. You know, it's time for us to to walk the walk as well. And and frankly, it's time for the foundations and donors that support the work that we do to also support that notion that the work is quality and worthwhile. And so I, I hope that everybody will embrace this overtime rule. I'm glad you mentioned that, Jorna. Um, we, you know, we all have to, you know, walk the walk and we we did that this election season in the past um election work has often paid canvassers and other people uh you know sometimes 10 bucks an hour 12 bucks an hour um this year there was a real effort across the progressive movement to make sure that uh when we hire field people and hire people to help uh do elections that uh, all these folks make at least 15 bucks an hour and you know we did that at citizen action and a number of our allies did and that that required funders to pay significantly more but it was the right thing to do and i actually you know think it's important. And uh, so I see that connect on this overtime issue. It's um, not always easy when you're running a nonprofit, or I'm sure in some cases a small business, to make that, to figure that out. But we ought to have this conversation in this country about making work pay. And uh, it's just not okay for us to be producing uh, this glut of lousy jobs. I do want to point out, just so people can understand the scope of this overtime rule, in 1980, there were over 10 million people who would qualify for overtime pay. Uh, now, in uh, most recently in 2015, that number is down to 3.5 million. And, folks, this is in, in this spite is of what we know is a much larger workforce. This is so, for salaried yeah. workers, right, Matt? For yes, hourly workers. Salaried work, right? Yeah. We're not talking about, yes. you know, hourly, but that's a still a, it's a shocking number that that fewer people are eligible. And we know the workforce is, is larger. There are more salaried employees today than there were in the past, and yet that number is so small. Your typical person, if it's better to not just have statistics, but images, you know, imagine a, a, a young African-American woman in Milwaukee who has worked her way up to assistant manager at a fast food store, has children, is making maybe 24000 so is barely getting by, is, is maybe even below the poverty line, depending on how many children she has, getting no overtime, being worked like 60 hours, and being on call all the time as well, because the whole on-call economy needs to be taken on. There are some cities... Uh, requiring, uh, uh, you know, uh, clear scheduling where you can't, ju- where you have to pay people overtime if you make them come in on short notice. Just for example, don't post um, schedules within two weeks. So there's a lot to do around the low wage economy. The right wing position is totally heartless. It's basically both that um, uh, poor people and people struggling, which is a lot of people because the middle class is being hollowed out, are totally responsible doing the right thing, but then we're going to empower businesses to completely undermine their ability to make a living and support a family and, and care for a family at the same time. So before we get to our furloughs this weekend, I do want to mention something that's going on this weekend that Citizen Action's been helping out some of our partners with, and that is a, a summit on Saturday to discuss how Wisconsin can actually create a 21st century transportation system. And uh, this is very important because the state budget debate is coming up 
and we know transportation is a huge issue. It's so important on, on many levels, including access to employment. Um, but uh, this Saturday, uh, hundreds of folks are going to be getting together in Milwaukee at MATC, and it's from 9 to 5 p.m. It's a day-long summit around uh, discussing and figuring out how to move forward on transportation. And so I want to encourage people, if you uh, are very interested to, in transportation as an issue, to head on down to MATC uh, from 9 to 5 on Saturday. Uh, we're gonna, uh, the, the, uh, the summit will also include uh, folks from the Sierra Club and a number of other organizations, WISPERG. So uh, just wanted to make sure folks are aware of that. We'll have some information, a link on how you can attend that. And we'll talk more about transportation uh, in a future podcast. Very, Matt, very important issue. One other thing, Matt, we should not yep. forget, um, you know, since we're all very hard on Scott Walker, he did come out for a major piece of federal reform uh, to make uh, Congress work better. I don't know if you and Jorna saw this. Uh, he now thinks uh, we should get rid of the filibuster. Oh. Isn't that a great good government position or not? Yes. Wait. I, <laughs> I saw that. That was like the day after the election. He was all over that, right? Yes. Which, again, this goes back to your point, Robert, about power at all costs, right? I mean, they, they used the filibuster to essentially derail the Obama administration and all its efforts. And now it would be the first thing that they would get rid of, right? So that they, and of course, uh, the irony after an election where the president doesn't even get the popular vote that uh, that they would ram this agenda through. But hey, you know, that sounds a lot like the, the governor we're very familiar with here in Wisconsin. Well, I don't so we, know. Yes. I don't know the odds, but if anyone's going to end the filibuster, it's going to be the Republicans, the, the modern Republican Party. So we might get come to a point where, you know, so all the things Democrat administrations did and Democratic senators and Democrats made Senate majorities to preserve the filibuster, you watch, like if they're about to like uh, uh, undermine Social Security and make uh, make vouch make Medicare a, a, a worthless voucher. Uh, watch the filibuster just get eliminated because you eliminate the filibuster with a, with fifty one votes. It's just a straight Senate rule. Yep, and it, just imagine how different the Affordable Care Act would be if we didn't have the filibuster. It, it would have been a fun. Uh, we certainly probably would have had a public option and number of other things oh yeah we would have had the house bill as the base so i will say that in favor of nancy pelosi i know she's controversial now within democrat circles based on the contested uh election for for minority leader but the version she shepherded through the house of representatives would have been much better than the baucus version that we ended up with because of the filibuster oh and one thing we shouldn't forget everyone uh citizen actions annual membership meeting which is open to all members is uh, Friday, December 9th at 2.30 p.m. in Milwaukee at 633 South Holly Road, which is right off uh, the interstate, right off, right off I-94, so to the south, the Holly Road exit. So uh, anyone who's in the area or even not in the area or wants to come and, uh, and be part of the conversation, please come on Friday, December 9th at 2.30. So, Jorna, what are you going to do this weekend when you're pulling out of your political bunker? Same thing I do every weekend, Matt. Try to take over the world by riding horses. Well, you know, you gotta have a, you gotta have some roses. Right? I'm consistent. Uh, with, bread and roses. You can't, can't all be hard, hard work and labor. So, well, you say hi to George and Reno for me this weekend. I will. Very good, Robert. What are you doing? 
So I don't know. I, I will pass on any jokes about the carbon footprint of, of George and Reno. Um, so I've just been in Boston, so I feel like I've, even though I was on business, I've had a bit of a furlough. So I've, I'm way behind as usual, and I haven't planned anything fun. I do know this is boring inside baseball that the uh, the city game in college basketball annual between Duke and Pitt is Friday night. And, uh, oh, now I remember, much better than the city game, the Big Ten championship game between Penn, the evil Penn State, Joe Paterno Lions, and, uh, and our Wisconsin Badgers. In fact, I got stopped by, because I had a ba- Wisconsin shirt on, by the, by the one of the uh, TSA agents saying, oh, you a Badger fan? That's going to be a great game in Boston. So uh, so there, it's got attention. I, I know that uh, even on the East Coast, this is, this, this is going to be a big game. And Bucky could end up in the playoffs if things uh, break right in the four-team playoff. Yeah, no, Robert, I could easily... Uh we could derail this podcast and have a great uh, sports discussion of the uh, playoffs. And it looks like the Badgers could be iced out of this uh, in spite of potentially being the big 10 champion, but uh, that should be a great game. It's uh, I'm definitely looking forward to, to, to watching that this weekend. I'm, I'm going to get a, get our tree, our Christmas tree. That is something I enjoy doing with my kids. So we're going to, go to Blifferts and get our tree this weekend and get it all set up and everything, get ready for the holiday season. The other thing I'm trying to do is sell a motorcycle. Anybody looking for a Kawasaki KX250 out there? Probably not. So, Robert, that's your opening for a carbon footprint joke. But uh, Motorcycles are good that, for the carbon footprint. I hope, I hope all of our listeners have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you all uh, next week on the Battleground Wisconsin Podcast.